John chapter 8 is where you can uh, stick your finger this morning in your scriptures if you have a copy. There is, uh, if you do not have a copy, there are some in some of the seats in front of you and uh, also will be on the screen. You can follow along today as we continue our journey through John's gospel, bringing us to John chapter 8. I want to give a, a, a word of... Uh, mm, uh, disclaimer, uh, before we go into the scripture that we're going to study today, because we're skipping over a popular text of scripture to get to where we are today. And there's a few reasons for that, and every now and then you get to learn a little bit something new about your pastor. Nobody is more uh, passionate and adherent to the true word of God, and um, I, I am passionate and, 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 and feel called to teach the scriptures accordingly. Um, we're skipping over a debated text of Scripture. As we go through John's Gospel, we've been hitting just about every verse, but we're skipping over a very popular, but yet a highly debated text of Scripture, uh, which is John 7:53, going through John 8:11. It's the story of the woman who's caught in adultery. You're probably familiar with that. Remember the one where Jesus kneels down and he writes in the dirt? Um, this is debated for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of the main reasons it's debated is because it, there's no evidence at all that it was found in the early manuscripts uh, in the scriptures. Uh, as best we can tell, the, this text was added uh, at least a couple hundred years after um, the writing of the majority of the New Testament. Uh, the text does not fit um, with the text before it and the text after so the debate is this. Is this a historical, actual historical event that occurred and somebody remembered it later and added it later? Uh, but the bigger question is, is it canonical? Which means, is it approved as part of the original uh, New Testament canon, the total encompassing uh, inerrant, inspired Word of God? And I'm not, I'm not sure on that. So I don't want to teach it as canonical text. It's popular. I mean, if, if there's ever a, a text of Scripture that's going to show up in a movie about Jesus, it's this one. Uh, people love this text. I enjoy reading this text growing up. And it, it may very well be an actual historical event that occurred with Christ. Um, but I struggle with teaching it from the pulpit simply because I'm uncertain of its canonicity. I'm unsure uh, without a shadow of a doubt, that this is the inerrant, inspired Word of God. Uh, it, it may be an actual historical event. I'm not going to beat up other pastors who teach it. I'm not going to beat up Bible study teachers who teach it, um, because I think it is in keeping with over, the overarching story of who Jesus Christ is. I believe Jesus would have forgiven this woman. I believe He would have told her to go and sin no more. Um, but right before it, Jesus is exclaiming that he is um, the living water. And right after it, in the same feast, Jesus is exclaiming that he is the light of the world. And then you have this sort of non-sequitur event occurring right in the middle of it. So I don't know how the whole thing went down, but I'll let you sort of, we can talk about that privately, I'll let you wrestle with that on your own. Um, but we're going to pick up today in John chapter 8 beginning in verse 12. We read in John's Gospel, 
Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, Even if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge... Um, he says, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So they said to Him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but He who sent me is true. And I declare to the world that I have heard from Him. They did not understand that He had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. Jesus earlier said, I'm the living water. Now He says, I'm the light of the world. Much like his statement as living water, this statement about being the light of the world sparks debate, especially among those who were doubters, those who were pessimists, the cynics, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the hating Jews. They all saw this as yet another opportunity to engage him, to pile on him, uh, to try and confuse people, and to uh, mock him. And people still do that today. Uh, But Jesus makes this statement during this same feast that we talked about before. Do you remember the Feast of the Tabernacles? The Feast of the Booths? The Feast of the Ingathering, as it was called. It was, it was one of the largest feasts in Jerusalem. Everybody came to celebrate this feast. And during the day, you remember when Jesus said, I am the living water, it was in the midst of this water-pouring processional. Seven times they went to the pool of Siloam, they filled... Uh, the water uh, filled the pitcher, the golden pitcher with water. Then they would to the temple, they would pour the water out on the altar, and they would proclaim, uh, and they would exclaim about God's salvation. And as they're doing this seven times, moving back and forth in Jerusalem to pour this water as a statement of God's provision and salvation, Jesus stops him and he screams out, I am the living water. You remember this. Like, stop with the processional, stop with the symbolic stuff. I'm the living water. You want to live, drink of me. 
Well, now he says, not only I'm the living water, but in the midst of the Feast of the Tabernacles, he says, I'm the light of the world. Why is this so significant? Well, again, you've got to understand the Feast of the Tabernacles. Because during the day, they had the procession of the water and the, the golden pitcher. But every evening, it had a counterpart. And it was called the lamp lighting ceremony. And they would go into the court of women in the temple complex. The, the temple had, had courts where you know, only certain people were allowed to pro- progress so far. You know, the, the court of the Gentiles. So that's where the Gentiles could come and gather with the Jews. And then you had the court of the women. Uh, that was as far as the women could go. And then on and on until eventually you got to the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go once a year. Uh, but during the, the Feast of Tabernacles, every evening, they would light four huge candelabra in that court. And the light was so intense that many said that it pushed light, it pushed light up into the dark night sky of Jerusalem like a floodlight. Now this was done for a very symbolic reason. It was to point out or remember the God who was in the midst of the uh, deliverance from Egypt, it was the God who was an all-consuming pillar of fire by night that would guide the Israelites on their way to deliverance, right? So they lit these huge candelabra, it would shoot light up into the sky, and it was to symbolize that God delivers, He is our light. And Jesus, in the midst of this, hollers out to everybody, I'm the light of the world. You could light as many candelabra as you want. You could shoot as many floodlights as you want into the sky and it would pale in comparison to the light that you have in me. Here's the question I want to ask this morning as we look at this text. If Jesus Christ is the light of the world, then what does it mean for us to trust in that light? Because the cynics are out, the boo birds are, are uh, decrying him and they're, they're mocking him. And, and in looking at this back and forth with those who debate him, we learn some very important truths about what it means to follow the light of Christ and what it means about those who reject it. So what does it mean to trust in the light of Christ? First of all, I think it means that you've come to the point where you recognize your relative situation. You've looked at your life and you realize there's something about your situation that's not right. It's not right. There is the absolute light, perfect light of Christ, the light of the world. And then, according to what Christ is saying here in this text, there is a darkness about us who live in sin. There's the light of Christ. This is the relative thing. The person who comes and they realize that there is the light of Christ, the truth of Christ, who He is, and then there is the darkness that is my life. And when you think about darkness this week, my mind went to this idea of how dark is dark. Because I don't think we even understand how dark the darkness is that we live in until we find Christ. Absolute darkness. Have you ever experienced absolute darkness? Like where you you can't even see your hand in front of your face within 
inches. I remember as a young boy, my parents used to um, take my family to Penn's Cave, which is in Center Hall. And you would go down into the cave and you would board a boat and they would take you on a boat through the caves and they would have all these colored lights and they would show you the stalactites and the stalagmites and um, they all had names. The Indians had named these different formations down in the cave. And if you're a young boy, I mean, like, this was really cool. I used to love doing this. And if you went down there in the middle of winter, it was 55 degrees. And if you went down there in the middle of summer, it was 55 degrees. It was just the coolest thing. But there was one part of the tour when you got into the deepest part of the cave and you began to become accustomed to the color lights and how beautiful everything was and you forgot that you were actually in a cave. You were in the center of the earth. So um, the, the tour guides would say, hey, now, let's, let's experience it. Now that your eyes have adjusted to this light down here, let's shut everything off. So they would kill the power to all the lights in the cave. And they would kill the boat light. Everything went dark. And I mean, when you're down there in the middle of nowhere, there's no light to come in anywhere. It's absolute darkness in a cave. It's the creepiest feeling ever. And I used to look forward to every time I went when they would do this, and then quickly after they did it, I remembered why I didn't like absolute darkness. We don't realize how much we trust in their sense of sight and how much we need light for sight. Back around 2007, um, British scientists put together a study where they gathered six volunteers. They had to be volunteers because they couldn't certainly force anybody to do this. It would be deemed as torture. So they asked volunteers if they would spend a period of 72 hours in a bunker with nothing but absolute darkness. And they wanted to observe them and study their uh, feedback. So they did this. And I'm sorry, not 72 hours, but just 48 hours. 72 hours would be inhumane. 48 hours, two solid days, they put them in a bunker, absolute darkness, to see what, their, what they observed happened to these people in darkness. And these are some of the things that they began to observe. This is the feedback from the people who were down there. The first thing that people began to realize was that it did not take long before they began to lose a sense of reason. And reason was overtaken by paranoia. Some of the people talked about how uh, you, you begin to not only lose sight, obviously, but because you have no sight, you begin to lose track of time. We don't realize, you know, how much the rising and setting of the sun does for our perception. And people began to, paranoia began to set in, and people began to think that they were going to be forgotten about down there. And then the volunteers began to describe what uh, grew as increased numbness in their hands, in their feet, in their body. Uh, They felt like because they can't see things, then they began to, whether it was psychosomatic, I don't know, but they they began to feel like they could not feel their body and feel their extremities. They also began to sense uh, or describe what they called as an alert loss of personal identity. They were having a hard time as the hours ticked by in absolute darkness, they began to forget who they even were. Their mental alertness began to slow way down. As they had no light in their life, they became not only numb physically, but they became numb mentally as well. But I found interesting was 
one of the last key effects had nothing to do with their observation while they were down there, but their observation after they came out. When they went into these bunkers, they said uh, they went in to these bunkers that were out in the middle of what they described as the bland British countryside, these old concrete bunkers that were disgusting to look at. The countryside was nothing of any, you know, appearance or remembrance. And they said when they came out, they were struck by how gorgeous the countryside was and how ornate everything was that they looked at. And I, I thought about this, and I'm like, you know, this when we live in the darkness of sin, people who are living in the darkness of sin, there's a lot of parallels here, isn't there? For people who walk in darkness without Christ in their life, your senses are off. Your understanding of who you really are is diminished. Your ability to feel the way God feels. You become numb and callous to what's true and good. And everything sort of, you don't have the right perspective on the appearance of things. But I remember as a teenager when Christ reached into my life and He revealed my sin to me and I turned from that and I turned to the light of the world which is Christ for forgiveness. It's like my whole identity changed, my perspective changed, and I began seeing things and understanding things in a way that I never could have understood before without the light of Christ. The Word of God has a lot to say about our hearts as we walk in darkness and then a lot to say with regard to Christ as the light of the world. Let me share a few verses with you. One popular one is in Romans 1, verse 21, where the Apostle Paul says this. He's talking about the lost world and he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The more they craved sin, the more they resided in sin, the darker their hearts would become. It is impossible, here's the, it is impossible to look at the lost world for any sort of perspective with regard to the truth of God. Every time, and in my opinion, social media has just, uh, rip the lid off of what lost people really think. It has given them a platform, a safe place to voice who they really are. Um, and some of the things that I see written and the stuff that I see written in blogs and articles online just screams out to me that spiritual things are spiritually discerned and you are never going to know the truth of Christ apart from Christ. You can mock him as the Pharisees did. You can belittle him as the hateful Jews did. But unbelieving people are going to say unbelieving things because their mind is continually entrapped in darkness. That's all they know is darkness. And I don't mean that hateful because I want to see them enlightened by the light of Christ. It's just... It's the reality of what it is. So we as a lost world, when we start looking to the, the world as our measuring stick of how we need to live our lives as Christians, that's a bad place to be. We need to continually not allow darkened minds to dictate what our minds crave, believe, and live out. Also in 2 Corinthians 6, Verses 14 to 16, the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth, 
Stay away from people who are not followers of the Lord. Can someone who is good get along with someone who is evil? Are light and darkness the same? Is Christ a friend of Satan? Can people who follow the Lord have anything in common with those who don't? Do idols belong in the temple of God? We are the temple of the living God Himself. As God Himself says, I will live with these people and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. What Paul is drawing here is a pretty clear delineation. There's the world which is dark and then there are those who follow Christ which are in light. The two don't go together. It's like oil and water. Now, I'm not saying avoid lost people. I'm not saying that at all. Just don't live your life based upon the expectations of the lost world. We live our lives based upon the truth and light of Jesus Christ. We are to be light in their lives, not the other way around. So, you think about these parallels. You have the light of truth. And in darkness, there is nothing but deceit. That's since the Garden of Eden. Then you have the light, which scripturally gives us wisdom. But darkness gives ignorance. You have light, which gives life. And you have light that gives hope. But in darkness, there is nothing but death. Jesus said this in this text. He said, whoever, quote, follows him. That's a very important point this morning. He said, whoever follows me. Much like the English word, this Greek word for follows, akalotheo, has two connotations. To follow in the general sense, like you follow a tour guide at a museum. And then there's to follow in a disciplined sense, much like a disciple, as you ascribe and you commit your life to another. I'm afraid and fearful that in our churches today, we have people who are following in one sense, but not following in the other. To follow Jesus Christ as the light of the world does not mean that he is a tour guide. It doesn't mean that it's something that we go along with as if it's some sort of physical journey. We don't follow Christ by showing up at church on Sunday. We follow Christ by the way we commit our lives to the light. Does this make sense? It's a much deeper follow than what a lot of people in churches today want to go and do. Jesus understood there was a difference. He understood there was a difference then to the type of follower you were and and even now. How do I know that? Because he chastised people. He communicated this to people on many occasions. In Matthew 8, um, remember when he was... uh, speaking to some of his followers. And it says in Matthew 8, verse 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, that's the, right, there's, a, there's the follow crowd, and then there are followers. 
When he saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. This guy's thinking, I'm going to go to the other side with you. If that's what you require of me, I'll physically go to the other side with you. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Meaning, there's a depth to this that you're not ready to go to. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Does that sound familiar? That was in our video this morning. Missionaries are called. And when they're called to follow Christ, their calling leads them to places that don't involve their mother and their father or their, sometimes their grandchildren leads them to places of uncomfortableness. So when Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, what this man was saying to him was, I'll follow you, but give me some time before I follow you because I need to make sure that my parents are taken care of uh, physically, financially, before I follow you. I need to make sure my parents are dead and buried and taken care of up until that point before I follow you. I want to follow you, Lord, but I have these stipulations over here. Now the funny thing is, what I don't think Jesus is saying here is, if you want to follow me, don't take care of your parents. I don't think he's saying that. He's saying, no one can come to me with stipulations. I'm the light. You're in darkness. Don't bring your stipulations based out of darkness into this relationship of following me in the light. Yet how many of us do this? I mean, not to be too harsh this morning, but we want Christ, we want the light on our terms. I, I, I joke about it all the time. I've been a lot of places for the Lord. I've done a lot of things for the Lord. I've been to some uncomfortable places for the Lord. But the one place I keep joking with Him about is, hey Lord, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. Just not Asia. I don't think I could eat anything there. And, and it's kind of a joke, but I know in the back of my mind that the Lord has every right to call me to go to Asia and do something. At this point, I don't think He is. But I have no right to put any stipulation on the Lord. If the Lord would want me to, um, you know, lay down this ministry here and go do something else, that's His business, it's not mine. And the same is true in our lives as well. Lord, I'll, I'll follow You and I'll entrust my family to You but I don't want my children to go here or there or do this or that. Um, my boy's pretty bright, and I love the idea of there being a Snyder along the way that's a, a surgeon or an engineer or somebody who does something famous and makes a lot of money, you know. And he can make his pastor really excited someday, you know, put some big tie checks in there and, you know, design something that's going to, you know, fund a missionary or something like that. And in the back of my mind, that's the way I see the plan playing out. But I also know that my plan is nothing compared to what God's plan has for my children. What if... I have a hard time getting these words out. What if God were to call my son to be a church planter or a pastor and never make more than thirty, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year? 
me with the highest education degrees. And God says, the degrees are nice, but my plan for your life is for you to pastor or to plant. That's not my plan. But I also know that I don't come to God with stipulations for myself or my children. That's his business. Remember in Luke 18, the story of the rich young ruler? He had the same issue, and Jesus called him out on it. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he went on to say, Yet nothing's impossible with God. Not, Jesus was not saying that rich people won't get into heaven. What he was saying was, There are things in our lives that some of us are going to hold on to tighter and really following Christ. There are going to be some things that are always going to be roadblocks if we allow them. Jesus said to this man, your roadblock is your wealth. You may live a life of moral integrity, but you're not ready to follow me because you're clinging to something more than me. Lay that thing down and then come follow me. And we know the guy wasn't ready to do it. If it wasn't wealth, it could have been family. If it wasn't family, it could have been career. It could have been anything for any of us that we cling to. So the question here is this. The relative situation, darkness, light, what kind of follower are we going to be? Now, the second aspect of trusting in the light of Christ, as we see here in this debate between the Pharisees and Jesus, is this. Not only uh, do you recognize your relative situation, but you recognize the importance of oneness. Oneness. Oneness between Christ and the Father, and oneness between you and Christ. This is an important biblical concept. Everything Jesus said and did was witnessed by a lot of people. An overwhelming number of people. He had an overwhelming testimony to who he was in his oneness with the Father. The Pharisees give a great example here to the sort of pervasiveness of what a hard heart looks like. You know there are some people that you get to the point where you feel like if you could just answer every one of their biblical questions, they're still not going to believe. That's what Jesus is dealing with here. They're those people who don't want to believe and they're going to deny and deny the evidence of Christ and who He is in His oneness with who God is no matter what. And He says some very damning things to him to them. He says this, One, Pharisees, you're incapable of even knowing Me. Let alone judge Me, you are incapable of knowing Me. And because of that, you're incapable of of judging me. Your words towards me mean nothing because you don't know me. The Pharisees' hearts were hard and it prevented them from 
making a faith decision to free up their understanding. You think about Jesus' words in John 7. Verse 17. He said this, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Our heart, our faith towards Christ dictates our understanding of who Christ really is. It's, a, it's, it's this amazing mystery. Through the Holy Spirit, God draws man to Himself. As a man's heart is tenderized towards Christ, the truth of who Christ is is revealed to man. And this cycle continues. But for a person to be following the light of Christ is to say, you are who you say you are. I believe who you are. I will follow you. You are not only the Son of God, you are the living God. You don't need to prove anything else to me. You don't need to convince me of anything. You don't need to satisfy me. You don't need to answer my questions. You are God. Now in God's goodness, He does answer questions. And He does satisfy. And He does reveal Himself. But that's not His responsibility. He is God. And as we trust in Him, in who He is, He reveals Himself. So when you're feeling upset that your friend is still so obtuse and difficult with regard to believing in the Scriptures, trusting in Christ, or that person on social media seems to be running from one dumb argument to another about how Christianity is just a religion of crutches for people who are weak-minded, and the Bible is just an old dusty book of hate speech, and you keep hearing these things. Remember this, they are in the condition of their darkness. They are incapable of knowing who Christ is. They're just like the Pharisees. Dumb arguments and blind accusations. Christ's testimony to oneness is built around, he says here, his origin. He says, I know where I came from. I don't need you to verify me. I know where I came from. It's you who don't know where I came from. He's right to judge. Yet he says he's not judging them. Why? Because we know the first time Christ came, he came to save. Seek and save the lost. The next time Christ comes, He will judge the world. He's clear. He says to them these very important words, Your residence is this earth. You can't come where I'm going, which is an eternal kingdom. You'll die in your sins. We don't like to talk about this Jesus, do we? This is not uh, butterflies and... Pats on the back, Jesus. This is the Jesus who points at people, sinners, and says, you're a sinner, and guess what? You can't go to heaven. You're going to die in your sin. I mean, that's about as straight up honest of Jesus as you can get. We like to talk about, the lost world likes to talk about their version of Jesus, which is, Jesus just wants me to be happy. Jesus wants me to be prosperous. Wouldn't Jesus want me to just have any kind of love that I want to have in my life? And that can look any way I want it to look. 
And what Christ does is He points at people. He does it right here. And He says, you unbelievers, you are in your sin and you will die in your sin and you can never go to heaven. Ouch. That does not sound like a feel-good sermon. And yet that's what He says. It's blunt. Thirdly, this morning, we trust in the light of Christ. We recognize a relative situation from darkness versus light. We recognize the importance of the oneness of Christ and who He is. And thirdly, and maybe most importantly for us this morning, we recognize or you recognize what you live for. You recognize what you live for. Jesus' accusations towards these Pharisees is pretty telling with regard to their heart which is opposed to light. What are your reasons? Or what do you live for? See, the person who is now following the light of Christ, you're going to see some common things here. That person no longer lives for self-righteous reasons. You no longer live for self-righteous reasons. In verse 21, Jesus gives them this serious warning. Let me read it again. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. In verse 22, so the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? There's a lot telling about these two sides in this verse. But in verse 21, Jesus gives them that warning and their response in 22 is one of mocking. He says, what, is he going to kill himself? Because what they're thinking to themselves is, The only place that they could not go where Jesus is going is hell. So, in order for this man to go to hell, he must be talking about killing himself. That's a sin worthy of damnation. That must be what he's going to do. Because the only places he's going that we're not righteous enough to go is hell. They got it all flipped wrong on their head, don't they? Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Hell isn't the place that I'm going that you can't go. Paradise is the place that I'm going that you can't go. But they were so self-righteous, so arrogant, they couldn't see the truth. You know anybody like that? Have you met anybody like that? (laughs) Maybe you were that person. You were so arrogant and self-righteous at one point in your life that you thought Jesus was the most ridiculous comic book character. He was absolutely a crutch for anybody who had no mind of their own. Those who can't trust in Jesus. That was your mindset. And then one day, God enlightened your heart and your mind and He drew you to Himself and you realized that to cry out to God and say that I can't, therefore I trust in Christ, is actually a pretty noble thing to say. It's the best thing we can ever say in our life. Because a day came in my life where I said, I'm sinful, and I can't redeem myself. I can never be good enough. But I believe that Christ in His righteousness can make me good enough. Through His blood. That's when my eyes were opened and my life was changed. That's when I went from being self-righteous to redeemed. You recognize what you live for. You no longer live for self-righteous reasons. You no longer live for worldly reasons. There are no longer worldly reasons that compel you 
Jesus reminds them of their own of their Jesus reminds them of uh, their origin versus his origin. He says, "You're of this world, I'm not. You are from below, I am from above." And more importantly, he says to them, "You're of this world. What does that mean?" Ekta cosmos hutos it's it means referring to the spiritual darkened identity in their allegiance to this world. It's not like you're of this world, like your physical feet are on terra firma. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you are a part of this spiritual realm here of this earth. And because of that, you are depraved. Because of that, you are in darkness. Because of that, you are caught in sin. I think the most effective and most dangerous Christian for the Gospel is the one who has become completely comfortable in their new ownership and their new residence. And what I mean by that is those who are going to make the biggest difference for the kingdom are the people who no longer identify their residence as here, but there. Because nothing of this world holds sway over that person anymore. The Pharisees, they were of this world. Their identity was what people thought of them. Their identity was their position. Their identity was their authority. That was their religious identity. For the Christian, we come and we say, you know what? I'm ready to lay it all down. I'm ready to die to myself. I lay down position, power, authority, expectation, comfort, money, you name it. I lay it all down. Here I am. I'm no longer of this world. I'm just passing through. My passport has been punched here. I'm heading back to where my real home is. Those are the effective, dangerous Christians. Listen to Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 47, he says, The first man, talking about Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. When your identity goes from being Adam to Christ, You no longer belong to the world of Adam. You belong to the heaven of Christ. That's cool. You get a new passport. We become... uh, What happens is, those people are the ones who quickly lay aside any reason coming from the world and they just go all in for Christ. Paul said in Romans 8, 9, and this is out of the message paraphrase, he says, but if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. Let me say that again. If God has taken up residence in your life, you can, be, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, no, won't know what we're talking about. When you tell your friends, yeah, you know what? I give 14% of my income to the church. Or, 
We don't do things on Sunday morning. We go and worship with the body of Christ. Your friends are going to look at you like, what? What a waste. What a waste. They're not going to get it. When you say to your friends, I'm quitting my high-paying job so that I can serve in this kingdom capacity over here. I remember the day that I quit. Bang, I remember it so clear. I was so excited that day. I went to my boss when I was a banker, and I said I quit. I quit. Uh, like some of you in here, you work in a corporate world, and you know that usually they don't care about you until you tell them that you quit. Then all of a sudden they're concerned about you. So I was pretty good at what I was doing. I mean, I was selling investments to a bunch of retirees in a wealthy retirement community and had that office in the Gulf of Mexico, and it was all good, but God had finally stirred my heart enough to realize that I was called to pastoral ministry and that I needed to leave. Now, a little qualifier, not to be too personal, but when I was called into pastoral ministry, my pastor came to me and he said, I'd like you to serve as an intern. Would you be willing to do that while you do seminary? I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds great. You mean I get to actually work in the church while I go to seminary? Yes. He said, I just, we've never had an intern before, so I want to make sure we can afford it. I need you to tell me how much you and Mindy need to live on. Okay. So by this point, God had broken me to the point where I didn't care what I got paid. I just had to be doing what he called me to do. So I went home. I sat down with Mindy. I remember at the time we had a a one-bedroom apartment um, that you could vacuum just with plugged in and one outlet. You could hit the whole apartment, right? And so I'm on a computer, and she's getting terrified looking over my shoulder as I'm like, now, I think like I think we could live on like 14000 I think we could do it. She's like, you tell him whatever you think. So I went to him and I told him 14000 and he kind of chuckled. He's like, man, you took this a little more seriously than I thought. How's 29000 like, okay, we'll do 29000 So I went to my boss at the bank and I said, um, I'm called to be a pastor, so you know, next week will be my last week. And I just that year made 65. And I, I, I said, and he said to me, called to a pastor, I've never heard that before. But something tells me if I offer you more money, you're not going to stay. And I, I never even thought of it. I said, no, I've been disobedient for too long. i got to go. And he had no idea what to speechless. It was so cool. First time I ever saw my boss speechless. He had no idea what to say. But I knew that the scariest place to be would be outside the will of God. So I didn't care what I got paid as long as I was doing what God was calling me to do. When Christ gets into your life and you become serious about following Him and you go all in, become dangerous. We become brave to the mission that he's called us to. There's a pastor's wife that Mindy and I have been becoming more and more enamored with. Her name is Kathy Litton, and she has a national ministry to pastor's wives across the country. We came to know her because um, this young girl that we had in uh, youth group in church when we first started ministry, is ne- she's now a pastor's wife. 
And this is her pastor's wife. Anyway, Kathy Litton has some wonderful things to say uh, to pastor's wives. And she wrote this to a group of pastor's wives. And I just read this this week regarding bravery, doing the hard things for God. This is what she said. His, pers- his being Jesus' perfect love, drives out all fear. When we're living rooted in his love, we are so secure that we do not live in fear or regard with what others think. We're not looking over our shoulder for applause or for accolades from others. Instead, we're able to be boldly obedient and shun the status quo. Not because it's trendy, but because we rest in a love that frees us from the fear of men. It's time to cut the strings of constantly or frequently worrying about what others think. And she goes on to say, true bravery rests in the security of His love. In many ways, the gospel mission is the ultimate deal breaker in practicing true bravery. It really is the point of being brave because there is no other purpose or product worth showing a daring courage and being willing to take a necessary risk. And then she said this. I found this the most interesting. Bravery is required to advance the gospel on this planet. Playing it safe will not spread the gospel. We've been doing that, and the results are in. It's not working. We've been doing safety for a long time with regard to sharing the gospel, and the results are in. It's not working. The follower of Christ comes to him and says, there are no worldly reasons that hold my allegiance anymore. Lastly, this morning, no longer settle for ignorance. People who follow the light no longer settle for ignorance. By asking questions like the Pharisees asked Jesus, they said, who are you? They demonstrate their greatest hindrance. Their own comfort is willing ignorance. They wanted to refuse to recognize. They knew who Jesus was. They had seen and heard all the things that he had done. And yet they just continued to mock him. Yeah, who do you think you are? The guy that gave him sight back. I'm the guy that made this guy walk over here. I'm the guy that healed leprosy. I'm the guy that walked on water. I'm the guy that raised Lazarus from the dead. You heard about all those things, right? Why are you still asking? Because you choose to live in your ignorance. Think about the man born blind. How he called out the Pharisees when he was healed. They're peppering him with questions. And in John 9, he says this, So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that the man... that." This man is a sinner, meaning Jesus. They wanted the man who was healed from blindness to claim that Jesus was a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You're his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered him, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. I love this. I mean, this guy come to the point where he's like, 
I don't know who you chuckleheads think you are, but this guy, he gave me my sight back, and that's good enough for me. And he's not going to give me my sight back unless he's of God. Maybe you want to be his disciples too. Ooh, they didn't like that. Out of the synagogue you go. So now this guy's without his religious community. And we read a little bit later, he bumps into Christ again. And uh, basically Jesus says to him, who do you think did this for you? And then Jesus gets him to confess him as Lord. So he lost a religious community at that point, and he gained everything in Christ. All the signs, all the testimonies, Jesus said, will be vindicated when Christ was crucified and resurrected. For a new believer, it's a beautiful thing when we begin to see this amazing change in attitude. When they move from willful ignorance to faithful belief and obedience. I love to see, I can remember it in me. A young boy who was raised in a pretty liberal home with liberal political beliefs. Finally, I was confronted with that reality of what abortion really does to a child. I said, I can't have anything to do with that anymore if I claim Christ as my Savior. No longer is a follower of Christ's own understanding the default, but rather it's the power and sovereignty and the truth of Christ. That's the light of the world. We go from darkness to being able to really see. The world thinks they're the ones who really see. And the truth is, actually, we're the ones that have the light to really see. We need to trust in that. Let's pray to the Lord.